Welcome to a bonus episode of United Ireland. Una here and I'm with Keelan Hogan, who you will have heard on the podcast before. And you've probably also read her landmark, uh, groundbreaking and expansive and brilliant uh, book, Republic of Shame, amongst her other many articles and various publications. But she's just dropped in to talk about an event that's happening um, this weekend. That would be May 29th on Saturday evening. Uh, it's um, in the National Concert Hall in Dublin, and it's presented in association with the International Literature Festival Dublin, which is going on at the moment. And it's about responses to Ireland's legacy of institutionalization or institution, yeah, institutions, um, and the kind of the legacy of that and the responses that survivors and artists and writers and so on have to that. So we just thought we'd talk about that a little bit and catch up um, with Keelan because the last time we spoke was a good while ago. And although it's hard to keep track of things that happened in 2020, uh, one of those things was, of course, um, the movement to unseal the archive and the publication of the Mother and Baby Hams report. So hello. Hi, Una. Lovely to chat with you again. Yes, so much has happened, I feel, over in recent months, um, particularly with Repeal the Steel, which was a campaign, I think, started by Athentis. And there were petitions, you know, where thousands of people have signed to support people adopted in Ireland to have access to their birth information and identity. Many of those people adopted through these religious run institutions and other baby home institutions. So I think there's been a real surge um, of people speaking out and standing in solidarity with survivors, sharing their own experiences. Um, I think what struck me from writing the book, I started writing this all the way back in 2017, uh, was how many people I knew who had stories and who were affected and mm. just how many people are still searching for answers. I think sometimes we think of these institutions as something in the past and yet when I was writing the book, I, I remember going to a random apartment viewing and the woman who was renting the room was born the same year as me in Vespera, the mother and baby home institution that ran until the 1990s and where more than 900 children died. Um, yeah, and one of the powerful things that you, you one of those, I think it's in the book or it may have been in, in an article that you subsequently wrote, but it was like millennials were born in these institutions, you know, um, this kind of demographic that that is such a signifier for like, you, well, a kind of youth, uh, aging youth, uh, shall we say? <laughs> Currently, uh, we're, we're still young. <laughs> but I want to. to um, just before we talk about the event itself, um, you know that thing I was saying about about twenty twenty. It's a real struggle to kind of um, conceptualize periods of time at the moment for obvious reasons. But uh, there have there has been a kind of obviously a reflection and introspection that has. Um, acted as a catalyst for various social movements and also for political engagement and for engagement in government and stuff more generally. Um, and one of those things coalesced around the publication of the Mother and Baby Home Report, as you say, the repeal, the seal thing, the unseal, the archive thing, a much uh, greater focus on the nuances around um, the rights of, of um people who are adopted or adopted people and all of that kind of that transparency bit that has really come under the microscope I think in times past when there were you know a publication of a report of this nature or or similar to it and you know a big political speech people kind of went okay that's it then 
but that hasn't happened. And of course, your book and, and your writing around it has been one of the things that continues to pull on these threads and, and say, no, we're not done yet. I mean, how did you feel about the discourse that was happening last year? Uh, it was very bumpy, but very necessary. It was. I, I, you know, I think it brought a lot of hope. It was obviously a very difficult time, um, you know, that the state was going to seal these records again, despite how many people had spoken out about their own experiences trying to get access to information, you know, having files returned that were completely redacted. One woman I know whose, uh, whose infant brother died in, in Vespera, um, you know, making freedom of information requests year after year and only finding out through an anonymized section of one of the commission's interim reports. Uh, so I think, you know, that sharing of silences or that sharing of stories, that breaking of silences um, really brought people together and, and, and created this momentum for change. And, you know, obviously the government went ahead and did uh, decide to seal those records, but that momentum has kept on going. And then earlier this year, when the final report was published, um, it was it, it was very interesting to see people actually share my book um, or, or share, you know, the clan report or, you know, testimonies of survivors and, and really um, speak back to that official narrative, you know, not accept that official narrative, you know, to see the first page of that final report describe these institutions where women were sent away as, as offenders, um, literally that's what the state and, and church called them, uh, to see these institutions described as refuges in the first page of that final report was just so hurtful. Um, and to say that women weren't forced in the, into these institutions and to displace the blame, I think, onto this universal we you know, this, uh, this onto society or onto to families um, really was displacing blame away from the state and the church and authorities, you know, at the time who were responsible for running the system of institutions. Um, so I think it, you know, it, it has brought a lot of hope. Uh, survivors I would speak to um, really feel that people across the country are standing with them now and refusing to, like I said, accept that official narrative. And part of the idea behind this event was, again, to bring together writers, musicians and survivors themselves um, to share their responses, you know, to really have their say, to create space for their voices to be heard directly. Uh, and, you know, writing the book, I was really struck by, again, how many people I would know who had their own stories. I don't think there's a family in Ireland who aren't affected by this in some way, whether they know it or not. And so uh, this is, you know, a chance to hear from, you know, different generations of people, of Irish people affected by this. And, and maybe people you wouldn't expect, you know, to, to, to sort of have um, a connection to this ongoing legacy. Musicians like, like Loa and the Mary Wallopers who will be speaking about um, their own connection and search for answers. Mm. Uh, and so I hope it will, you know, again, shed light on this issue because it's an ongoing issue. Um, you know, there is new, a new bill promising access to information now, but, you know, survivors, um, I was just talking with Noelle Brown, um, who speaks of this as an equality issue, you know, similar to repeal and marriage equality, she would have campaigned for, you know, this access to information, the right to your own identity um, is an equality issue. And she said survivors just feel battered was the word she used by promises, promises, promises. Um, you know, and even with this promise now that this legislation will bring change, um, the trust has really been broken down. Mm. So I think it's important to create as many spaces as we can 
you know, for survivors to speak directly. Yeah. And we're also speaking on a day where um, planning permission to build apartments on the side of Bespera has has been rejected, which I think is very good news for um, survivors um, of Bespera also. But tell us a little bit about the event then. It's going to be, there's going to be some like, there's obviously going to be some a lot of music. You've got people like Elaine Feeney, amazing poet and novelist, and you say um, the Mary Wallopers and so on. What's the vibe of it? Um, it's it, it's I think it's one of the interesting things is when you're talking about official narratives. Obviously, your book was an, an expert narrative, but not the official state narrative. And these events, you know, really pull out other narratives as well. Definitely. You know, I think it's it goes beyond um, just the mother and baby home institutions. That was something that I think was important to me um, was to acknowledge the experiences of people who'd been sort of affected by this, this shame and this silence that were imposed on, on women and on families, um, but maybe wouldn't have been sent to an institution. So people like Magella Moynihan, um, who as, you know, a trainee Garda was, uh, you know, sort of persecuted um, and charged with bre- breaching Garda regulations for having sex outside wedlock and was pressured and essentially forced to, um, you know, agree to an adoption um, and separated from her son because of that stigma and because of that, you know, shame enforced by, you know, state authorities um, and, and by the Catholic authorities at the time. So Magella will be speaking about that. She was actually, um, she actually grew up in an industrial school as well herself, which I think is a part of her story that people don't necessarily know. And the Catholic Crisis Pregnancy Agency, Cura, which was actually responsible for handling the adoption of her son. I think it's important to remember that only shut down in 2018. And actually one of the institutions I write about in the book um, in Donegal operated until 2006. And Cura was was very closely involved with that institution. So, you know, 2006 is not a long time ago. So I'm hoping, you know, that people like Magella sharing their stories, the Mary Wallopers, whose eldest sister and their parents were told uh, died in the National Maternity Hospital, but were never given any evidence or information. And their parents searched and searched um, for years for answers about what happened to her. And they say that her fa- their father uh, passed away, still believing that she might be alive and, and could have been illegally adopted. Um, so really, I think these are important stories, but it's also, it's a creative collaboration. So, you know, I think for for many people across generations, you know, that songs and, 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 and poetry and spoken word um, has been a really important way to, to talk about um, experiences that were silenced um, mm. for so long. Uh, Terry Harrison, a mother who will be joining us, said, you know, during what she calls her years of silence, she would have written songs and poetry just as a way to, to sort of relieve the pressure of uh, that weight, you know, of silence. Right. Um, and I think, you know, it will be it will be, uh, you know, a stark sort of um, challenge, I think, to uh, that conclusion of these institutions not being refu- or being refuges, um, but it will also be, you know, a, a testimony to the resilience and, and and you know the strength of of these survivors and these artists. Mm. Um, we'll also have artist uh, Alison Lowry's work installed on stage, um, really beautiful uh, glass work, 
um, responding to um, what happened in Tum and the many children who died in Tum. So um, it'll be a combination, you know, of, of creative responses. Amazing. Uh, and people can watch it on um, the NCH YouTube uh, or live via their Facebook and on Crowdcast as well. So if you go to nch.ie, you can check um, the details of, of that out. It's at eight o'clock Saturday, uh, 29th of May. Now, Keelan, your Republic of Shame came out September 2019, is it? it yeah, it was yeah. first published then, yeah. Um, and so it's less than two years, as I kind of wrangle with my time warp, um, <laughs> since its publication. It had a massive impact uh, in Ireland, in the UK, and uh, in the US, and, and, and around the world. How, is it, how have things been for you uh in the aftermath of that a year and a half down the line with regards to the impact of that book how has it changed your life or how has it changed your journalism I think uh, you know when I started writing Republic of Shame the final report of the Commission of Investigation was due to be published within months so I, I thought that before my book was published you know we'd have this final report that I think I and many others were hoping you know would really um, do justice to you know to the testimonies of survivors and would provide you know a greater insight into the reality uh, behind the walls of these institutions so you know it's been years waiting for that to be published and i i guess i i think i had hoped it would be published and it would sort of you know provide um more answers uh for families and for survivors but it just feels like there's more and more questions. And so, you know, for the past year or more, you know, since the book came out, I've really continued to to follow this, you know, and to write about it. And um, it's one interesting experience has been speaking to young people um, invited to speak at, at feminist society events and speaking to young women and men uh, who are really, you know, outraged at this. Um, I think, and, and survivors are actually always surprised when I say this, older survivors, they think that young people wouldn't have any interest in this or wouldn't really care. And I found the opposite. I mm. found that young people just have, you know, no time for the excuses. Um, I think some people try to explain it as a way as, you know, these were the times um, or, you know, it was, it was a different time. Young people wouldn't understand. But I think young people really um, just see the injustice of, of how women were sent away and disappeared within these institutions. And they see the injustice of people being denied access to their own information and their identity. And people, you know, mobilize politically through repeal and through marriage equality who have seen that they can achieve real change in this country um, are just determined, you know, to stand with survivors and and make sure that this ongoing silence um really is broken uh, yeah so I think that's very hopeful the apparatus of the state is is really struggling or grappling with um the re the, the social reality I suppose of, of how people feel about certain things and how they won't stand for certain things I think the last time we spoke on the podcast you were doing a good bit of reporting um and thinking about housing and the homelessness crisis um, you've obviously been, as you say, continuing to write about this topic in, in particular, not least a really amazing piece um, in the New York Times early this year in January, I think it was. Um, but how what what other reporting have you been doing um, away from from this particular topic? Are you still kind of honing in on the housing stuff as a theme or what's the vibe? 
I'm definitely hoping to get back to that. I think that is something that is so important. And in recent weeks, you know, we've seen, um, again, a breaking of silences around people's experiences. Um, you know, I, I live in Dublin in, in a house share. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm someone in, in my early 30s. I definitely didn't expect to be, um, you know, sharing a house this age. And that's the reality um, for so many of my friends and so many people I know. Uh, I wrote um, for Vice magazine a few years ago about the housing crisis, both in Dublin and Berlin, um, and the experiences of people in emergency accommodation. And, you know, writing Republic of Shame, I was trying to understand how institutions like that were normalized. Um, and I think it's really important to realize how we're normalizing very similar systems of institutionalization from direct provision to um, emergency accommodation. You know, I think both essentially the same system. So it is something I, I want to write about <clears throat> further. And it was it was something that affected women who were sent to the institutions. Housing was a really crucial issue. Uh, there was so much discrimination when it came to so-called unmarried mothers um, trying to find housing. And it was what prevented many women from actually being able to keep their own child. Um, you know, even in the 1980s, women were being evicted from houses if it was discovered that they were an unmarried mother. So, you know, and, and obviously there's ongoing stigma against single mothers um, particularly single mothers who are facing homelessness, as as many are now, uh, due to the housing crisis. Um, you know, we think of Margaret Cash, woman who was forced to sleep in a Garda station with her children, and the backlash online that you saw the vitriol. You know that um, idea of a single mother being a burden on the taxpayer. You know, and that was the same stigma that that women sent to the mother and baby home institutions faced at the mm. time. Um, so I think it's very interlinked, you know, and I, I, I think um, it's one of the most important issues today. Um, and we've seen some really important movements, you know, from Take Back the City, um, which I would have followed very closely, um, to, you know, uh, protests, really, you know, significant protests calling for housing to become a constitutional right. You know, um, which which is possible with political will. We've seen it introduced in Portugal. Um, you know, Portugal have acknowledged um, that housing is a human right and a, a constitutional right. Um, and I think that, you know, the pandemic has shown that with political will, we can introduce rent caps. We can introduce, you know, um, a moratorium on evictions um, things that we were told for so long were impossible mm. uh, or unconstitutional seems to be the new um, sort of go to excuse. Uh, so. I think the pandemic has shown that that is possible with political will. And mm. uh, so I think we're going to see huge movements um, and people yeah. taking to the street demanding uh, change. Yeah, let's talk about that just before you go, because I know you've um, you've got a, a busy, busy day ahead of you. But, you know, as somebody who has that kind of um, both wide angle lens on on Irish society and also gets into the the nitty gritty of the reporting aspect as well. Um, I would imagine, like most uh, people, you've been thinking a lot and reflecting a lot over over the last year, um, and and wondering what the knock on effects of of this uh, area era would be. You know, I'm 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 kind of on the same page with you, really, in in thinking that there will be massive um, housing protest movements. Like, what do you think um, the social 
and the 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 socio-political or, or movement aspect of this time will be um in and i and i suppose the 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 short to medium term in ireland i think one thing tiny, that is tiny question there yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, where where do i start on this um Again, I think people similar to, you know, repeal the seal and, and this movement um, to, to support survivors and, and to, to, you know, demand the right to, to stand for truth and, and demand access to information. I think people are mobilized in a way um, like never before and realize they can achieve change. I mean, this is the third anniversary of repeal and uh People are, I, I just remember this great sense after that of what do we change next? You know, I remember meeting people at, at housing protests and it was, you know, housing is next, ending direct provision is next. People feel really empowered to actually make change in this country. And I think one thing that's very interesting as well is cross-border movements, um, you know, for change in terms of uh, access to housing, um, you know, the rights of migrants, uh, reproductive rights um, and, you know, the rights of LGBT plus people as well. Um, you know, movements for equality that are, I think, creating solidarity cross-border um, on this island. And again, talking to young people, um, they very much see uh, issues in, in all island terms, um, you know, not solely to do with the Republic. Um, they see an all island um, approach uh, to, to change. Um, so I think that's really significant. I think that's something we're going to see increasing. Obviously, we've seen the question of United Ireland um, become a very tangible one um, in recent times. And I think that has opened up conversations, not just about, you know, a border poll or, or the sort of complexities. And it is complex about how we achieve that or, you know, constitutionally what changes. But I think a vision of what we want for the future of this island. You know, I think people I think that's opening up really interesting conversations about that, about who we are as a people um, and what we want for our future. Uh, and I think it could be a really, you know, obviously it's it, it is complex, but I think it actually could open up some really important conversations. Um, and I think there is a new sense of of pride in being Irish, you know, um, and in, in that sense of identity that is inclusive and that is uh, moving towards, you know, a uh, greater equality, but also I think acknowledging the deep inequalities that the pandemic has made, you know, um, starkly obvious um, and that need to change, you know, while I think we can celebrate uh, some of the, you know, achievements in terms of, of, of greater quality in Ireland, um, in terms of economic inequality, access to housing, access to resources, um, even, you know, health, access to healthcare um, and mental health, you know, supports. Uh, there's, there's a lot that needs to change. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, we can, I think, harness, harness the hope and the, um, you know, the, the, the sense of empowerment that those those movements that that did achieve change in this country um, brought us, but also, you know, acknowledge that there are many things, many people still being, um, I think, left out of those movements or marginalized um, that we need to create space, uh, you know, to, to hear for their voices to be heard. Um, as a journalist, I think I'm sure you're the same. We often hear this 
this idea of, of giving people a voice or you get, you know, thanked for giving someone a voice. And that's something that really doesn't sit right with me. I think you, you can never give someone a voice, you know, um, people have their own voices and often they're speaking, but no one's listening. Um, and with breaking the silence with this event, you know, it's this idea of, of just creating a space on a national stage. Um, for people to come together and really share their own responses and, and speak um, their own experiences. Excellent work, Helen. So great to talk to you again. The name of the event, as you say, is Breaking the Silence. If you go to nch.ie, you'll be able to find uh, the details and the, the links there um, to watching it on Saturday, 29th of May at 8 p.m. Great to talk to you. You too. Take care.